And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So God promises to save, and now a savior is coming. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the arrival of King Jesus. We pray this morning by your Spirit. You would illuminate this text because we know the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word is being preached today, and we pray that our hearts would be responsive, obedient, that you would make much of Jesus as we exposit this text. We ask all of these things in the name above every name, the name that matters, the only name that saves. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Aren't you thankful for second chances. I wish that there were a reset button or a second chance button for life. If you've watched the movie Groundhog Day, you know Bill Murray has this opportunity every day where he says something wrong. So then, oops, that day's a throwaway. So the next day he has the opportunity to to say the right thing or do the right action and then that leads to success. I wish there was that in life. I wish that as a husband I go to give my wife flowers and as I hand, him, hand her the flowers, she goes, what are these? And I go, they're flowers. You love flowers, honey. And, and she says, and this isn't my wife, by the way. She was at first service. Just, I can say anything I want now because she's not in here. But uh, just imagine this. And, and she goes, what are these? And you go, well, I thought you loved flowers. And she says, I hate white, white roses. And so just the perfect opportunity. Boom, reset button, 30-second rewind. The flowers turn magically to red. And then she looks at them, she receives them, her eyes, she blushes, her eyes are filled with love, and you're the most romantic husband in the world. I, I wish that there was a reset button for life. That'd be great. In business, you go to the, the, the meeting, and as you walk into the meeting, you realize you're supposed to be the one who's presenting today. And just look, boom, reset button, you're ready now, and you get the promotion. But see, sadly, life doesn't give us a second chance or a reset button. So we often reap what we sow, and our decisions do matter. But sometimes God will test us, he'll reprove us, he'll discipline us, and as we're being disciplined, we learn the lesson that he is seeking to teach us as a loving father, because a father will lovingly discipline his children. So we're going through the discipline, we learn, and in that learning, we begin to respond obediently, and often, not often, but sometimes, he'll withdraw his hand of discipline. And sometimes in his super abundant grace, God will graciously give us another opportunity to be obedient in that circumstance and to respond to him in a way that is obedient and honoring to him. And in a way, what we're going to see in our text this morning that Brad just read is a second chance, if you would, for Zechariah. Zechariah is the father-to-be of John the Baptist. And I have to admit, there ha- I've never preached... Uh, I can't say that now anymore because I just did preach it in first service, but I've never preached up until today a, a Christmas or an Advent service about John the Baptist. And that's a disservice because if we're to fully and truly understand the Christmas story, we can't omit or overlook or forget about 
the work that God did through the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. And so what we're going to see is today what God was doing in the heart of Zechariah and how he's going to communicate uh, the news that the angel gave him and he's going to prophesy to the people around him who John the Baptist is going to be. We learned this two weeks ago that he didn't believe the message of the angel Gabriel and so he literally became tongue-tied. He had to sign from that point forward through the nine months of pregnancy. And even though that's more descriptive than prescriptive, don't for a minute think that, well, if I disobey the Lord or I don't trust him, now I'm going to be mute. Um, that's not the idea here. It's, it's descriptive, but we do learn for a brief period of time he was unable to communicate, or the theme of our series, he was unable to repeat the sounding joy. And last week in our study, Pastor Micah taught us through what Mary's response was. Mary's response, different than Zechariah, was reverence, it was humility, and it was a, a desire to obey God's word. Be it unto me according to your word. And so what we're going to see today is what if Zechariah could do this over? What if he had a second chance to believe and to declare what the angel had told him? Uh, what if he could praise God and declare God's word to those around him? And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see God's grace on display to Zechariah and through Zechariah as his tongue is loosed to communicate who his son John was going to be, the forerunner of Messiah. So we can look at this text today and say, wow, before the first advent, the first coming of Christ, Yahweh is going to fulfill his promise that he left off in the Old Testament of sending someone in the spirit and power of Elijah. Uh, and so it's critically important that we look at John the Baptist. So in our text this morning, if you're taking note, we're going to see three things. We're going to see John's parents at the beginning and in the middle section, we'll spend our, most of our time, we'll look at John's prophecy. Really, it's Zachariah's prophecy about John. And then finally, we'll conclude just real briefly with John's preparation. And I've told you our application in this series is simply for us to learn from these examples in Scripture and to continue to herald the good news. So our only application is to just repeat the sound and joy. We'll get to that. But let's look first at John's parents. Look with me at verse 57. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. So like a good historian and like a good storyteller, Luke goes back, split screen from what we learned last week with Mary, and he goes back originally to the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. So because it's been a few weeks, or maybe you haven't been here, um, look with me back at verse 21, or if you don't have your Bibles, I don't know why you don't, but look at the screen and uh, you can follow the text. It says in verse 21, when the, the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Remember he had gone in, the angel had revealed himself. When he came out, Zechariah was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remain mute. So he's unable to communicate, so he starts signing. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So remember, the words that the scripture uses, that Luke uses, is that Zechariah and Elizabeth, do you remember this? 
how it describes them. It doesn't say they were old. It was very fair. Luke says they were, remember, advanced in years. We're going to go with that today. They were advanced in years. And Elizabeth is barren. So she's unable to have children. She's medically unable to conceive. But we know nothing's impossible with God. What, what is impossible with man is certainly possible with God. So because God miraculously intervenes, she's pregnant now. She's pregnant, she's waiting, and her husband can't talk. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> you ladies can be the judge of that. But the time is here. She gives birth to a son. Look at what happens next, verse 55, uh, 58. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, we do this today. When a baby's born, we celebrate. Hey, when a baby, when we find out the gender of a baby, we celebrate. This is happening now. There's, there's, there's uh, gender reveals, and people get real creative with this. They pop balloons, and the blue or the pink come out. We get really creative with our showers or sprinkles. That's a thing now. It wasn't like that when I was younger, but now we have sprinkles. And uh, when a baby's born, some of us have cigars. So there's, there's just general mirth and excitement and joy when babies are born. Well, listen to what William Barclay says about a custom that it was believed that was followed during the time of the first century. He says, when the time of the birth was near at hand, friends and local musicians gathered near the house. When the birth was announced and it was a boy, the musicians broke into song and there was universal congratulation and rejoicing. If it was a girl, the musicians went silently and regretfully away. I was like, that's just terrible. That's just sad. I'm thankful we don't have that tradition today. But see, in Elizabeth's household, there's double joy. There's the joy that there's a, a son, but there's also the joy of the fact that she got pregnant. So there's a miracle happening, and God is clearly at work. So it says in verse 59, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. This is according to the law of God. So they were submitted to God's law, circumcise your child on the eighth day. They would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. So I want you to circle two names if you're taking note, the name Zachariah and the name John. These are both very important names and the meaning is very fitting. So Zachariah's name means God has remembered. John's name means God is merciful or Yahweh is gracious. Now these are very timely, very fitting names. We look at Zechariah and we say God has remembered. Just on this point real quickly, I wanna make sure we understand what the Bible means by that. What the Bible does not mean is that God has short-term memory loss or God is just so busy in heaven and there's so many creatures to keep count of. He's like, what's that guy's name again? Oh, I remember his name. As if God forgets. That's not the idea biblically. The idea when we see in scripture that God remembers, especially in the Old Testament, it means to turn his attention to someone and, or someplace and to act on their behalf. So I'm so thankful that God remembered Noah when he was in the ark that God remembered Rachel when Leah was having all the children. I'm so thankful God remembered his people, Israel, in Exodus 2. And he heard them crying out and they were oppressed and he remembered his people and turned to them. So God does not forget. He remembers by turning and acting on someone's behalf, giving his attention to someone. And that's what Zachariah's name means. So think about that. For an entire generation, 
his wife has been unable to conceive. And for 400 years leading up to this, God had seemingly been silent. There was a divine silence over Israel. And so nine months, Zechariah, you could say a picture of God's communication to Israel uh, has been un unable to speak or hasn't been speaking. But God has remembered him. God has remembered Israel. And God is turning his favor, his attention to his people. Well, then there's the name John. And John's name means that Yahweh is gracious or God is merciful. So God was remembering his people and he was about to grace them with his mercy in speaking to them and preparing the way for the Messiah to come. But the people around them, did you notice? They're surprised at this name choice. Like, why did you pick, why did you pick John? Like, why didn't you just go with Zachariah? That's your name. You've named your son after you. Uh, so why, why go with this new name, John? I mean, at least go with Uncle Zedekiah. Like, like where's this John coming from? And so this is Zechariah's moment. At this moment, Zechariah could sign to the people and say, well, I just like the name John. Or I'm just, I'm just, I found it in a baby name book and it just stood out to me. I just thought, hey, I like the fact that God is merciful. Yahweh is gracious. So I just decided to go with that name. No, this is Zechariah's moment. And look, look actually how comical verse 62 is. It says, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. This is comical because they're treating Zechariah as if he's deaf, but he's not deaf, is he? <laughs> no, ostensibly he can hear them just fine. He just can't talk to them. So imagine enduring nine months of people going, oh, he can't hear me. And so they're signing to him and he's like, I heard what you said. I just can't communicate back to you as easily. And so I think that would have been very humbling for him, very frustrating for him. But notice with me, his response. Verse 63. This is his moment. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. What a, what a bold statement of resolve. The angel told me his name is John. His name is John. I'm not going to waffle on this. I'm not going to question the angel. I did. That didn't pan out very well, but I'm going to believe and I'm going to affirm it. So his first response, it says they all wondered, verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing God. Notice with me, church, his first response is faith and praise. His loyal submission to the Lord responds or results in his ability to speak, his first opportunity to communicate, and it's worship, it's blessing God with his speech. Again, this isn't, this isn't prescriptive. It's not if you have faith and suddenly uh, your bank account is filled and suddenly you have the ability, if you, do, if you are a mute person or you're unable, you have a disability, if I just have more faith, then, then I suddenly will be freed from this disability. That's not the idea at all. This is, this is not prescriptive for us, but it is insightful that by faith, he now trusts the Lord and now he's able to speak. And his first response is to praise. So note the response. The result, verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid up them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of Yahweh was with them? You guys catch what happened? God is feared, God is revered, God is declared. Zachariah's response, like Mary, is now humility and reverence and because of that, God's renown can extend outward. The people's question around him 
is what will this child be? And we live on this side of the cross and resurrection, so we know who he's going to be, but up until that point, they had no idea who he's going to be. It's still a question mark. And, and so when we think about our children, what are our children going to be? One scholar said every child is a bundle of possibilities, and there was a Latin schoolmaster who used to bow gravely to his class before he taught them. And when asked, why do you bow to your students? He answered, because you never know what one of these little lads will turn out to be. We, we don't know what our children are going to be, but children are a blessing from the Lord, a heritage. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. And so we love the fact that lots of our church is pregnant right now. I think this is awesome. I think it's in the water. It's in the coffee, actually. <laughs> uh, but it's exciting. This is an awesome thing that we're, we're having many children. And as this opportunity opens up for Zachariah and Elizabeth to bear a child, to give birth to a child, they don't know what he's going to turn out to be. And so thus we have the prophecy. The game changer for John was not going to be how awesome his parents were because they were advanced in years. The game changer was going to be the power of the Holy Spirit in his life because his parents wouldn't be around much longer. They were going to die off. But the Holy Spirit was going to be influencing and empowering him. And that's what made all the difference. So who is this young boy going to be? Look at John's prophecy or Zachariah's prophecy about John in verses 67 through 79. By the way, uh, this is known in church history as the Benedictus, the Benedictus prophecy or Benedictus prayer. Uh, last week, Pastor Micah taught us Mary's prayer, which is known as the Magnificat. So if you're keeping count, we're looking at the Benedictus today. So verse 67 says, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Here's what we're going to see in this text. We're going to see praises. We're going to see promises. We're going to see predictions. Yes, I like alliteration. If you haven't figured that out by now, I like using peace. So we're going to see praises first. Notice first, Zechariah blesses the Lord God of Israel. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he's visited and redeemed his people. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So notice how he's already speaking way beyond John the Baptist. He's now speaking after John. He's speaking of the visitation and the redemption and the salvation of his people that comes through the household and line of David. So this is not John the Baptist. He's speaking of the whole redemptive work that God is doing. And, and yes, it I don't want to say it begins with John the Baptist, but it, it's fulfilled and it's culminating in John the Baptist. But this verse is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. Notice that he says he's raised up a horn of salvation. That seems like an odd phrase. That is an Old Testament picture that's often used using an animal's horn, uh, speaks of strength, of power. So what he's saying here is like Psalm 132, the Messiah is like a horn of salvation being raised up, mighty to save. You might be here this morning and you say, no, 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 uh, I'm, I'm such a sinner that there's no way that God has enough power to save me from all of my sins. There are some sins I've done that are too deep and too wicked for God to have the power to redeem me. And I would say, you're greatly mistaken. Right? We just sang the words. Our sins are many, but what did we sing? You guys sang it. His mercy is what? It's more, it's greater. It far extends. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over our sin. And so he's raised up a horn of salvation, meaning he's mighty to save. 
He's powerful to save. He has the strength to save. Why is God to be praised? Notice that Zechariah says not because he's visiting his people for wrath, judgment, or discipline. No, he's visiting his people for mercy. God has not forgotten Israel, but he's sending a deliverer to redeem them from Adam's curse. God's savior would come in great strength and he'd come to rule and reign on David's throne. So these are things to praise God for. And that's the first thing he does. He uses his tongue to praise. But then there's promises that have been fulfilled. So notice the second section of the prophecy. Verse 70 says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So he says, God has told us this. He's promised us this. And then he lists a series of things that the Old Testament has promised. So perhaps in this verse, he's mentioning or referencing Jeremiah 23, perhaps. Jeremiah 23, five and six says, behold, pay attention. The days are coming. It's a promise. Declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So God promises to save and now a savior is coming. Well, here's another promise. Look at what he says next, verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. There are lots of times this is repeated, but maybe one of them is Leviticus 26:42, where God says, I will remember, not that I forgot, but I'll remember my covenant with Jacob, with Isaac, with Abraham. It's repeated over and over in the Old Testament. Well, then we read on that God is coming to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Certainly, he has to be referring to Zephaniah 3.15, where God says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. God's gonna wipe away the enemies. Well, maybe in verse 74, he's referencing something else. He says that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Maybe here he has Jeremiah 32, 29 in mind, where he says, I'll give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Whether Zechariah had these specific references in mind or not, we could spend a lot of time looking through the Old Testament prophecies that speak uh, of the promises of God that these are, are fulfilled here. The point is that God's promises include mercy, covenantal faithfulness and love, and deliverance from oppression, deliverance from the enemies. But all of this has a final aim, and it's in verses 74 and 75. The final aim is that God's people would serve him not out of fear, but in holiness and righteousness. That their, their motivation is not the fear of the curse, the fear of the law, but the motivation is eventually they'd serve him in reverent fear, in a reverent obedience, that they would belong to him in holiness. They're set apart in belonging to him, but they also are righteous. They stand before him and the righteousness, the Lord who is our righteousness, is working obedience in them. And so this is, these are the promises that God 
uh, has said in the Old Testament and Zechariah saying, this is all coming to fruition. This is all coming to pass. It's all happening in our generation. And then we come to the actual predictions of Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, these are specifically about his son, John the Baptist. So notice verse 76, he says, and you child, little eight day old John the Baptist being circumcised, he speaks this uh, to his son, you child will be called the prophet of the most high. A better or more accurate translation is you will be prophet of the highest. That is your title. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. Notice that his role, John's role, is to go ahead, to go before the Lord, before Jesus, to prepare his ways as a forerunner. Now, in ancient times, kings would often have a forerunner, a messenger, and that forerunner had two jobs. And the first job uh, was to come and make certain that the roads were passable. So going into Israel, um, in the ancient world, uh, it was very difficult to traverse into the land. There weren't clear pathways, clear roads. So a lot of obstacles, a lot of ups, a lot of downs, uh, a lot of things that you had to clear to get into uh, different towns, different cities. And so when the Romans came into power, they had the might, the means, the manpower, and the money to clear the path. So they were able to, to fill up the valleys so that it wasn't like a difficult treacherous path, and they were able to remove some boundaries, some obstacles in the way, so that the Caesars and the armies had a clear path. And so listen to these words from Isaiah 40. If you're taking note, these are important texts to write down. Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5 says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You guys see what's happening here. The forerunner has to go and smooth the road out to make sure the king's arrival is, uh, is possible. But secondly, the second job the forerunner, the messenger had, was to announce or to let the people know that the king is coming. And so he was to go along this route and just declare the king is coming. The Messiah is on his way. Uh, and so Malachi 3.1, notice these words, another incredibly critical verse. And this is towards the end of God's revelation to um, the people, uh, his people in the Old Testament. This is right before he is silent, radio silent for 400 years. But he says, behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So they knew it was coming. They were looking and anticipating for a messenger to come in the wilderness and declare, prepare the way of the Lord. The, the word for prepare, uh, there in Malachi 3.1, it means to turn to, to face, to regard, to give attention to. In the same way God's remembering and giving attention to his people, he's saying, behold, you guys pay attention. You guys regard, look. Pay attention to the way of the Lord and turn towards it. So the forerunner of Jesus was to be, you could say, a spiritual bulldozer. He, he was coming to make the high places low and to make the low places level, 
to clear the obstacle out of the way, to remove any excuse, any hindrance, to clear a path so that nothing would keep the king from arriving. So those who are high and mighty, they were about to be brought low. Those who felt, I'm unworthy, I'm cast out. No, you would be invited and included. And this was John's mission. You see, the scripture tells us what John the Baptist does years and years and years later when he begins to minister. We read these words in Matthew chapter three. You wanna jot this down. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And here's his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king's coming. I'm heralding the king. He's coming. Prepare. He says, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So Matthew makes that correlation. When he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Jesus at another time would say, that is John the Baptist. Now, uh, Matthew tells us in verse four, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. So a little strange, a little bit different, not a hipster, we'll get into this, but it says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and the Jordan, uh, the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So they should have known he's in the wilderness. He's declaring exactly what Malachi and Isaiah said he'd be saying. But it's been 400 years of silence. You can imagine the people are thinking, who is this guy? Like, how eccentric can you get? The guy's eating locusts. He's, he's eating honey. He's wearing odd garments. This is strange. We don't have a category for John the Baptist. Where does he fit? And he doesn't fit any of our categories. So we're not sure what to do with them. Well, why, like, He's quoting Isaiah. That's, that's old school. That's 700 years ago. He's not progressive and modern like us. But see, we need not be thrown off by the garb, by the camel's hair, the leather belt, the wilderness man diet. We don't need to be thrown off by this. Actually, John knew his life was to be set apart in the spirit and power of Elijah. Uh, I want you to jot down 2 Kings 1.8. 2 Kings 1.8 literally describes Elijah the prophet as wearing a leather belt with a garment of hair. And so he is in the spirit and power of Elijah. And I find it interesting. I don't think that we can build a big biblical case for this, but I just find it in interesting that Israel was known as a land flowing with milk and honey. honey. Someone said cereal. It's not milk and cereal. It's milk and honey. <laughs> Honey's good on your cereal, but milk and honey and I find it fascinating that one of the judgments of Israel departing from covenant faithfulness was that their land, their crops would be ravaged by locusts. So I find it interesting that John made for his diet something that represented God's covenant of love, the promise, the land, honey, and something that represented judgment. But see, there's more to this. D.A. Carson says, both Elijah and John had stern ministries in which austere garb and diet confirmed their message and condemned the idolatry of physical and spiritual softness. You see, John's message was neither popular nor wanted in the mainstream, but his message was necessary and needed. He came to confront and condemn the idolatry of physical and spiritual softness. Would that we today receive a message that would confront and condemn our own idolatry. So not only would he go before the Messiah to prepare the way, to make the, level, the places level, 
But Zechariah goes on to say back in verse 77 here that John would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That wasn't through John, certainly not. But when Jesus came to John to be baptized in the Jordan River to fulfill all righteousness, John's gospel tells us what John the Baptist declares. He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And here's what John says. John says, behold, Israel, pay attention. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So if you're keeping count genealogically, Jesus was born after John the Baptist. John the Baptist was born prior to him. So he was after me in birth, but he was before me because we know John, in the beginning of John, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So he's saying, hey, this, he may have come after me, but he's actually, he's the I am. He's before me. And he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water. The reason is that he might be revealed to Israel. This was John's purpose in baptizing. It was an act of national repentance, but it was an, also an act of messianic revelation. He was coming to culminate in this moment where he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Don't necessarily follow me, but pay attention to God's Lamb, God's spotless, unblemished offering who comes to expiate the sin of the world. If Israel said, Hosanna, save now. How can we be saved? John would say, through God's lamb. How can we be forgiven? Through the lamb of God, the spotless, pure, unblemished lamb. I love what Spurgeon says here about the, the one who came to prepare the way. He said, men's hearts were like a wilderness wherein there is no way. But as loyal subjects throw up roads for the approach of beloved princes, so were men to welcome the Lord with their hearts made right and ready to receive him. See, it was necessary for John to come before Christ came on the scene. That's why this makes sense to talk about at Advent. We can't see and talk about and, and celebrate the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, without his predecessor, the forerunner, who came to prepare men's hearts for his arrival. Now, these last two verses in Zechariah's prophecy seem to be the most confusing to many scholars, but they're really not. Look at verses 78 and 79. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God, it's the whole motivation of the arrival of Messiah, it's the mercy of God. Then he says a, a challenging phrase. He says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What I'd like you to do, if you have um, notes today, circle, if you have your Bible, circle the word sunrise. Um, this has caused some people to go, is he just talking about the rising of the sun in the morning? You know, the sun will come up tomorrow and it's going to be a great, is that what he's talking about? Well, no, another translation says the rising sun. Another translation says day spring. Still other translations have root or branch. So the idea here, don't get caught up in, is it the sun coming up? The, get caught up in the fact that this is a title. This is a messianic title. Now, it could be sun or, or rising sun or day spring. Numbers 24, 17 or Malachi 4, 2, they reference the Messiah as a rising sun. Uh, Isaiah 11, 1 speaks of the root of Jesse, a Davidic righteous branch. 
So don't get hung up on which term we should use. The point is that God's tender mercies will visit his people again. Like a, a sunrise after a very dark and long night, Christ the Messiah will come to give light to those in darkness and in death and to literally show us the path of peace, the street that leads to shalom. You see, in the scripture, when we see light and darkness, it's always a picture of purity and it's a picture of revelation, of, of God's insight, of God's truth. So when we see light, when we see that Jesus is the rising sun after a time of darkness, under Adam's curse, we see light rising and literally Christ rising from the dead. Cyril of Alexandria says this. He says, For the world was wandering in error, serving the creation in the place of the creator, and was darkened over by the blackness of ignorance. Night, as it were, that had fallen upon the minds of all, permitted them not to see him, who is truly and by nature God. But the Lord of all rose for the Israelites like a light and a sun. So Zechariah prophesies, not that his son is that light, but his son is to declare the light. That his son, John the Baptist, will go before the Messiah and will be used mightily of the Lord. And that brings us to our final point, just one verse, John's preparation. Notice verse 80 with me. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, we don't have all the details of John's childhood and uh, what he experienced as a young man. But where the scripture's silent, we need not be vocal. Amen? So if we don't know what his childhood and young life was like, we shouldn't try to con make conjecture. So what do we know? We do know he grew. <laughs> he became strong, you could say, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was in the wilderness until he publicly appeared to Israel. Um, so when was that? Well, flip over to Luke 3. Notice with me, Luke 3. Luke 3 tells us, when that was, verse one, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. It says at the end of verse two, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So there's John waiting and waiting for years and years in the wilderness, eating locusts, eating honey, dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, waiting for that moment when the Lord would commission him with this baptism of repentance, with this message of repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was obedient to his calling and he was willing to set his life apart to proclaim this message, to point people ahead, to point people to Christ. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So you hear that and you go, wow. Okay, so in the created order, John the Baptist is the greatest of every man that ever lived. Well, you'd be mistaken because Jesus goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, this may seem like a sermon out of place for Advent, but I can assure you it's quite appropriate. I wanna draw our attention to the fact that John's life, John's ministry would be to simply point people to the gospel, to point people to Christ, to herald who Jesus was. He was a messenger. And church, a messenger is never sent to proclaim themselves. They're sent to proclaim the message. And in this case, John's message is 
The king is coming. Now, are we any different? Is our life any different than John's? Well, yes, in many ways, we live in a different era. Um, But in the same way, his life was completely lived to point the hearts of men to another. In the same way, you and I have the same commission to repeat the sounding joy. See, in John chapter one, we read this. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Not through John, but through the light. He was not the light. John wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. None of us praise the light of the lamp or the lamp itself. We don't go to the lamp. This lamp is amazing. I love. No, the lamp simply illuminates the room. So our, our attention is drawn to the light of the room, not to the lamp itself. One person said it's the glow of the bulb that lights the room, not the shine of the brass. So we don't draw attention to John. If anything, John draws our attention to who's coming after him. And in the same light, you and I, we're not to draw attention to ourselves. Look at me. Christ says, no, him we preach. We proclaim Christ. One scholar pointed out that as late as AD 250, so 250, um, there were some of John's disciples who were still preaching about him as if he were the Messiah. And if John were alive at that time, centuries after his death, he would say, no, don't proclaim me as the Messiah. I'm not the light. I'm the one who declares the light. There's no rivalry. I'm not the savior. I'm simply preparing the way of the Lord. John 3:28. he had this opportunity to declare himself. But what does he say? I'm not the Christ but I've been sent before him. And then he says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. I don't have the bride. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him as the bridegroom arrives to take his bride, he says, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. See, in the same way, you and I have the opportunity to say, I'm not the Christ but he must become greater. I must become less. Is there any better purpose for our own lives? For us to, as we know the the words, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. That we exist to declare his excellencies, to seek with the dawn and close of every single day, with every inhale and exhale of every breath, that we seek to see him increasing uh, even as we decrease. You see, like John, the purpose of our life is to point people to Jesus Christ, to point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm so thankful that our God is the God of the second chance, aren't you? Like Zechariah, we have the opportunity to hear God's word, to humbly believe God's word, to receive God's word, to repeat God's word. Like John, we have the opportunity to embody the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, this is the Christ, our God most high, who hears your sad and bitter cry. He will himself your savior be from all your sins to set you free. He will on you the gifts bestow, prepared by God for all below, that in his kingdom bright and fair, you may with us his glory share. We have an opportunity during this season and every season, but specifically this time of year, there are many people in our community who are not excited about Christmas, not because they aren't believers. There there are many believers we know, 
but because of tragedy, because of some, something that Christmas or the holidays represent that brings sorrow, that brings discouragement, that brings shame. And we have an opportunity this year to say, no, no, no. See, Christ has come. We celebrate the birth of salvation. And God is not slack or his arm too short to save. No, he's mighty to save. And so we have an opportunity to point people to, not only to the coming king who came as a baby, but to the risen king who's coming again. So this year, as we celebrate the first advent, we also look ahead to the second advent when Christ comes in power and his glory has no end. His kingdom endures forever. And so let's not forget that as we, as we gather around with our families, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, as we consider the babe in the manger, let's not forget the crucified lamb on the cross and let's not forget the king who's coming to conquer one day. Amen? Let's stand together and let's close in prayer. Merciful God, today we've heard of your servant crying out in the wilderness. We've heard the call of repentance and restoration. And we want to respond. Lord, we thank you that we've heard in your mercy you offer forgiveness. That you baptize with water and with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So God, cleanse us today. Make us new. Empower us. Lord, you tell us that you're ushering in a reign of peace. And we want to see your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we just sang it, but we again declare it. Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Your mercy triumphs over judgment. Our vision is dim, but your coming is at hand. Our hope is feeble, but your promises stand firm forever. Lord, everywhere we look, we see a need for your restoration, for renewal, for peace. And so during this season of Advent, we pray for peace. We pray for hope, for joy, and for love to be not only demonstrated in and through our lives, but declared through faithful lips. Lord, give us the boldness of John the Baptist to confront a hostile world and say, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Lord, give us the desire to not shrink back out of shame or fear of man, but Lord, to declare the excellencies of you who's called us out of darkness into wonderful light. Lord, your kingdom will reign forever. May that truth never grow old or cold to us. We will dwell with you in what was seemingly unapproachable light. We'll dwell with you. We'll behold you. We'll see you high and lifted up. We'll declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The new heavens and the new earth are filled with his glory. We look forward to that day. So Christ, even so, come again this Advent. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Hosanna, save now. Be at work in and through our lives for your glory and our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.